I'm Mark Oppenheimer, and this is The Syllabus, a new podcast about campus politics. Once a week, I'll be talking with somebody who I hope can shed a little insight on what students and faculty are arguing about at colleges and universities. Whether they're talking about the Middle East or affirmative action or Title IX or mental health, these are important issues that students care about. Or maybe we just think they care about them or think that they should care about them. This week, I'm delighted to welcome Connor Friedersdorf, a staff writer for The Atlantic. On October 14th, a week after Hamas's attacks in southern Israel, Connor wrote an article entitled Students for Pogroms in Israel. And the subhead was, quote, by excusing murder and kidnapping, activist groups have already changed campus politics in America, unquote. I was intrigued and I invited Connor to talk with me about how exactly he thinks campus politics have changed. The interview was conducted on October 19th, so it has not kept up with current events, but I think it's worth listening to anyway. Here's our conversation. Connor, you wrote last weekend, campus politics in America irrevocably changed this week when student groups that champion the noble goal of justice for Palestinians endorsed the evil means of war crimes in pursuit of it. What did you mean campus politics in America irrevocably changed? It changed in a few ways. One is just that the Israel-Palestine conflict divides college campuses and divides the left uh, more than most issues do. It's unlike a presidential campaign where, of course, there are students who voted for Donald Trump. There are a few faculty members out there who voted for Donald Trump. But you know, more or less, the consensus position on college campuses is that Donald Trump was a bad candidate. Uh, the Israel-Palestine issue really um, just divides a lot of campuses down the middle. There's a big activist presence that is, of course, pro-Palestine. And at the same time, you look at opinion polls just in the last few days that seem to suggest that most people on American college campuses think that Hamas was responsible for uh, these latest atrocities and, and not Israel. Right off the bat, you just have a political divide that uh, is unusual on a college campus. Uh, and, and unusually emotional. This particular atrocity is particularly difficult for college presidents, I would say, to deal with, because for years they've put out statements on you know this and that political issue, um, often policing even what are called in academia microaggressions, with the idea that no student should feel unsafe on campus after Hamas attacks Israel. You have uh, a lot of students who feel awful about that, some of whom have family members in the region, in, in Israel itself, some of them in Gaza itself. And then you have these students for Palestine organizations putting out statements that basically say, um, look, we stand in solidarity with uh, the colonized people who are rising up against their oppressors. And this made a lot of... Uh, you know, Jewish students, students who sympathize with Israel feel um, anxiety, feel unsafe on campus in a way that I think is perfectly understandable to most people. And yet to censor the students who were making statements in favor of Palestine would go against, uh, you know, freedom of speech and the core ability to talk about this fraught subject in academia. And so to me, it represented this break where, um, the therapeutic university as it had operated until that point was just untenable in this particular controversy. What do you mean by the therapeutic university? I know this is something you've written a lot about, students' desire for a safe culture, for safe spaces, to be free from what they perceive or have learned to call trauma. How pervasive is that? Is that something like the 
Israel-Palestine conflict, which is most salient on elite campuses, or would you find it at a third tier, small town, state university branch campus as well? You know, I think that this attitude um, toward campus life, toward safe spaces and emphasizing that everyone needs to feel a sense of belonging or a sense of home, it, it began at elite campuses. It began partly for ideological reasons. It began partly because students on elite campuses are, uh, in a sense, consumers. And there are administrators who want to cater to their sensitivities for, for kind of consumerist reasons. Um, but it really has trickled down to less elite institutions. I reported a story recently on the community college system in California. And the same kind of attitude has filtered all the way down to the lowest tier of public higher education in, in California, for example. And this is because it's kind of carried out through this bloated administrative apparatus that is increasingly vying with faculty members across the country for control of these institutions. And the ideology of this administrative apparatus is, is very much, uh, we're going to intervene in um, student life and interactions among peers, and we're going to uh, kind of mediate it and, and, and try to reduce conflict and uh, increase, I guess, feel-good vibes, if I can put it that way. So that's really interesting because what you're saying is that all of a sudden the therapeutic administrative state bumps up against the pro-Palestinian uh, feelings of a lot of students and and the pro-Israeli feelings of a lot of students as well. Not everyone's going to feel safe. Not everyone's going to feel nurtured on a campus where this is a huge issue. So what's going to break? What's going to give? I think that there is going to be some abandonment of, of the idea of, of safe spaces, although just today I saw that a group of Harvard faculty um, – signed a statement objecting to, you know, there have been trucks driving around with uh, screens, with LED screens on the back of them around Harvard, showing the pictures of students who signed on to some of the Palestine statements and kind of a publicly shaming them and calling them anti-Semites. This kind of pretty significant breach with normal practice on college campuses um, was one of the things that that these Harvard faculty flagged and demanded that the president of Harvard put out a statement um, to make these particular students feel included and to denounce them. And so um, even in this moment when it, it's pretty clear that college presidents can't put out a statement that will make everyone happy, um, you, you know, still faculty on both sides of this issue are calling on them to do so. Um, but I think that more and more college presidents are going to kind of return to a bygone era when they kept insisting that the university is a place where people hold arguments, but it does no. not weigh in itself on the arguments. It's interesting, that, that question of whether they should weigh in on arguments. On the one hand, I have tremendous sympathy for that. I don't really, and I never have cared what, what university presidents have said, even when I've been a student at universities or worked for universities, especially when we know that they're massaged by PR teams and lawyers and everything. And, and they're just, it's a PR strategy, not an actual expression of anyone's real feelings, right? But then I do wonder how far you push that. Yeah, I think that you're right to call attention to the idea that uh, we needn't care what college presidents say. I'm kind of baffled by the degree to which student activists today 
are demanding that administrators make a statement. You know, I, I was an undergrad from 1998 to 2002, and there were plenty of activists on campus, but their demands generally weren't um, administrator, validate my worldview. Instead, it was pay the dining hall workers more or, or something kind of tangible and specific. The fact that we all know that college administrators are responding to pressure when they make these statements, that they are PR to a large degree, means that they're a mechanism to signal who has power in the university. And I think that different factions uh, receive them as such, receive them as a kind of cue of, uh, well, we have the juice to get the president right. to make it's a not about what the president. Sort. It's not about caring, is the president on my side? It's about demonstrating to the world, we were, we were able to lean on the president to say something sympathetic to our side. Right. And I think that that ability to demonstrate power uh, is the very reason why these statements um, shouldn't be made, w which is to say um, there are all kinds of chilling effects on college campuses that can get in the way of having the kinds of um, intellectual and truth-seeking and scholarly exchanges that you would want to see. I actually wouldn't even mind if, right. if a college president said, you know, my personal opinion happens to be this, but I want to make clear that uh, I want to hear from precisely people who disagree with me most, and I'm going to defend their free speech as much as anyone. You know, a statement like that is fine to me. I don't actually care whether the president does or doesn't say their opinion. Um, right. What I care about is foregrounding the ability to have these tough conversations. And to me, that's the most disappointing part of the reactions that we're seeing to the um, Israel-Palestine conflict right now. I've kind of been looking at different statements that college presidents have put out. And what I haven't seen yet is anyone who has put out a statement to the effect of, look, this is a, a tough and emotional time for many people. But one thing we do here in the university is we have a toolkit to seek truth and wisdom and knowledge, even at, at really tough and emotional times. And, and so I'm going to pull together uh, you know, some of the resources that we have. I'm going to pull together some faculty members who can lend insight just into the facts of the matter and so that people on all sides can kind of uh, brush up on what we know apart from our values and, and what our opinions might be. And I'm going to try to get some of these groups with very different views together uh, with someone who is good at having mediated conversations that are truth-seeking even across difference. You'd think that universities would want to hold themselves out to be the one place in society where that can happen, the best place for that to happen. And yet what I see is a lot of administrators who are taking more of a kind of, um, we want to reduce all conflict as much as possible kind of approach. And these statements always read badly a year later. Go back and look at all the statements that came out in the aftermath of the death of George Floyd. And they read, you know, so they're filled with cliches. They're filled with promises that went unfulfilled. They're filled with groupthink. They, they're the farthest thing you could imagine from sincere, thoughtful expressions of regret at his murder. You know, instead, they seem just market tested and banal and stupid. Insofar as this becomes an expected part of the job of a president of a university, um, th then you begin to hire for people who are good at this. And is that really the competency <laughs> that we want to be selecting for? I say, no, we want to be selecting for almost anything else would be better than that. I'm always struck by the fact that in America, we presume that college students 
are in a sense actual children. In other words, a discourse that might be really meaningful when talking about 11 or 12 year olds, which is there are certain things you do want to shield them from. There are certain things that they're old enough and strong enough to have access to. And parents and teachers should be making thoughtful decisions about what images we expose them to. They're not really fully capable of making those decisions on their own. If they're traumatized, they might not know how to talk about it. In other words, we're treating 18-year-olds as if they're 12 rather than treating them as, as people who are old enough to enlist or get married. I think that's a pretty American phenomenon. I think to a degree that's correct. I remember living as an undergraduate in Seville, Spain, and going back in my early 20s. And both times I was living around a lot of students who just lived in apartments together in the city. And of course, you know, they're American college students, you do that too. But I think the living on campus model of life is a a bit more prevalent in the US, uh, especially at elite institutions that are relatively influential in the sector. And this has come along with just a tremendous growth in this apparatus of student life administrators who are there to manage everything from, you could call it user experience to conflict resolution. I don't want to say it's entirely unjustified because you do have, you know, 19, 20, 21 year olds who are, who are living away from home for the first time and experimenting with uh, drugs and alcohol, some of them for the first time. Uh, This is a group of uh, people demographically who are at higher risk of the onset of certain kinds of psychiatric conditions. Um, There's certainly a greater risk, you know, in the first years you begin drinking of of getting alcohol poisoning or of overdosing on drugs. And there is an increased suicide risk um, around this age as well, you know, as opposed to like older adults. And so, I don't have any objection to having uh, an apparatus on campus where you can go and talk to, for example, uh, a psychologist if you need to. Um, what I would say, the message that I would you know, give if I were in the position of a college president or a dean of students is, look, um, if you're going through a rough time for whatever reason right now and you need um, to seek out resources, we have them there for you. Um, But that's going to be an anomaly. And for the most part, we expect students to be able to handle uh, a robust exchange of ideas, even on fraught subjects. And most of you are perfectly capable of that. And if you aren't capable at this moment, uh, part of our job is to get you in a position where you're back to being capable of doing that. And that's our goal. Uh, Instead, the implicit message I hear from a lot of these institutions and administrators is, of course, it's perfectly understandable that most of you would be unable to engage with, um, you know, a robust exchange of ideas. And it's, um, you know, I think it winds up being infantilizing and it dovetails oddly with a social media environment where all of these students are exposed to all the most horrific things in the world in their news feeds or their Twitter streams or on TikTok or whatever, kinds of images that uh, none of us were exposed to uh, 30 years ago. And it's not as if these administrators are clamoring to keep their students from social media. Going forward, you've written that a kind of consensus has been shattered, that the campuses are going to change. This center will not hold. You can't have a a climate that protects people's feelings and that emphasizes security and safety and also have the kind of activist climate we have now. Um, 
what's going to change? Is anything going to change? Is anything going to change administratively? Do you think that colleges or universities are going to have to do something different? I, I think one thing that's already changed is a few college presidents have already put out statements that say, hey, expect fewer statements from us in the future. <laughs> We're not going to weigh on these things as much. Uh, Stanford was the most prominent uh, to do this. And uh, I saw a couple of others as well, in part because Something we've already seen as well with this story unfolding is um, big donors writing, especially at the University of Pennsylvania for some reason, and saying, um, hey, we don't like the way that you have handled this. Uh, You put out all these statements in the past about every little thing. Now we sense a double standard with this Israel thing. Uh, We're not going to give you our money anymore. And whether any given instance of that is correct or incorrect, I think that that direct donor pressure is going to change the way administrators talk uh, in their very risk-averse public-facing comments. (laughs) It's a bit harder to know um, at the student life level how people are going to react. But I suspect just because there are these intractable differences between different camps on campus, some of whom lean more toward Israel and others lean more toward Palestine in this conflict, um, you're just going to have more pushback when the therapeutic university is invoked on either side. But you know, I can't say for sure. Who knows what will happen? Connor Friedersdorf of The Atlantic Magazine and TheAtlantic.com, thank you for talking with me. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to The Syllabus. The Syllabus is a production of American Jewish University and InsideHigherEd.com. The show is editorially independent and all comments or complaints or suggestions for future episodes, especially suggestions for future episodes, should be sent to me at mark.oppenheimer at aju.edu. The show is produced by me with Alyssa Silva and is edited by Jacob Kaufman. And our team also includes Tessa Grasso, Amelia Hamill, and Sherry Hirely. Remember to like and subscribe and rate us and join us next time on The Syllabus. (laughs) 